going to look then at these, this new beginning um, in three um, sections in the supremacy of God, in the inheritance of those who are saved, and in the exclusion of those who are dead. And so we look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, and the first half of verse 6, which says, He who sits on the throne said, so here, for the very first time since the beginning of the book, we have God speaking, the one who sits on the throne. He's identified in chapter 4 and 5 as the one who sits on the throne. And he says, behold, I am making all things new. Now, this has already been uh, forensically, judicially declared of us. We are already new creatures in Christ Jesus because he has already been perfected and we are identified with him. But now all things are being new. All things are being restored. He said, write for these words are faithful and true. God is reminding us here that everything that he says is going to come to pass. He is perfe perfectly faithful to all of his promises and every declaration he makes of the future is a promise. All of these things are true. They are trustworthy. We can um, bet on them. And so then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Again, this is what he said, or the I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is what he said back in the beginning of Revelation. Here he is concluding it all. But we have this word, it is done. And this might remind us in the English, at least, of John 19.30, where we see the phrase, it is finished. This is one we're all very uh, familiar with, because this is the moment that our salvation was finished. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, this is the Greek term to telestai from the verb teleo, which means to pay in full. The debt that was owed has been paid completely. In Revelation 21, 6, however, we see, then he said to me, it is done, using the Greek word gegenon, which is from the Greek verb genomai, which means to become. All things have become. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now, this Gaganon is actually in the plural. So we see actually that it says they are done. Now, it, this isn't as easy uh, to understand in the English. So the English translation is smoothed it out by simply saying it is done. Uh, but this is plural for a reason, because these things have come to pass. And this is probably identifying all of the purposes of God in creation and in his new creation. Everything that he planned for the first creation has come to pass in the new creation and right from the beginning of the new creation. Uh, we see the beginning of this start to take place in Revelation chapter 10 with the mighty angel that comes down to declare the great tribulation of God that is about to be uh, the, in the revelation of Jesus Christ in his kingdom where he's about to take the kingdom from the false messiah. We read then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it that there will be delay no longer. Remember back in chapter six, they asked Lord, how long, how much longer? And he says, uh, not much longer. He says, now there is going to be no delay. From the point where he begins to take the kingdoms back from uh, from Satan, there is no more delay in the purpose of God. 
purpose, which God is working out here in the book of Revelation. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. This is the verb to telestai. It is going to be uh, paid in full as he preached to his servants, the prophets. But this is looking forward to something different than the redemption. The redemption has already been paid. It's already been made. He has a second purpose here that he is working out in the book of Revelation. Revelation 16, 17 says, And the seventh angel poured out his bowl uh, upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. Gegnon. It is finished. So we have to ask the question, what things are being finished at what times? Because it's not all the same. We can't just throw it all into a blender and say it all works out in the end because God has given us details that we can distinguish between one thing and another. And his word is important to him. In fact, he elevates it above his own name um, in Isaiah. And so we want to pay attention. What things are being finished? Because this is what brings him glory. And when we say it just doesn't matter, that means his glory does not matter. And I'm not comfortable with that. I don't think anyone here is either. And so what is being finished? What we saw from the beginning of his creative purpose on this earth in Genesis 1.28, that he created man as something special and something unique over creation, that they would uh, have uh, some of his um, identity, that they would be created in his image, that they would represent him here on earth. They would specifically represent him in regards to his will. He said to them to multiply, uh, to be fruitful, to subdue creation, to rule over it. Um, and so this is his creation purpose. His creation is to be glorified in the kingdom with man ruling as his viceroy. God has created mankind for fellowship with him, specifically obedient fellowship. This is the mediatorial throne, not the universal throne, the throne which God sits on and always had, but he created a microcosm of his own um, being and put man there as the head. Now, ultimately, he's predestined this from before the creation, his own son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, would take on uh, this nature and rule on God's behalf, and this would be God's ultimate glory. And so from the very beginning of creation, his purpose was to put himself into humanity through his son, Jesus Christ, and to rule as the perfect uh, intermediary between God and creation. This glory has been from the beginning, but it began with mankind. So God's purpose in creation was a kingdom for his glory with a man ruling as his viceroy. But this kingdom purpose was interrupted by the fall. Mankind did not obey God and his will, and they did not enact his will on this earth. And so there comes the need of another, a Messiah who would save mankind from their sins and who would vindicate God's kingdom program on this earth. And so then we see this need for a savior to restore relationship with God so that mankind can rule over this earth sub subject to the will of God. And this was fulfilled when Jesus said it is finished because he is a savior and he has provided the atonement for mankind. This is the reconciliation that restored our uh, relationship with God so that we could be in fellowship with him, so that we could be obedient to him. Now, in uh, the first parts of Revelation, where we read that it is done, 
that it is finished, that the bold judgments are going to finish out um, the purpose of God. This, it is done, refers to the restoration of God's kingdom and God's king. Because this is what he planned from the very beginning, that a human being would reign over this earth in perfect subjection to the will of God and would um, rule on behalf of God in fellowship with him. This was finished uh, at the end of the bold judgments when Jesus Christ took the throne of this earth. And of course, I'm speaking in the past tense, but this is still future to us. But it is written as if it is past because it is so certain. But now we are looking beyond. We are looking beyond the fulfillment of Jesus sitting on the throne of this earth. We are looking now to they are done. All of God's creation has glorified him in fulfilling all of his purposes on earth. All of that is done now, looking in uh, Revelation chapter 21. Everything he set out to do, he has been successful in doing. The present heavens and earth can pass away because it has brought glory to God and it has been, uh, it has been fulfilled. And so now we have a new creation in which the throne of God and of the Lamb are one. We have a different kingdom purpose here, a different, uh, a different continuation of the kingdom, um, but it is a distinct uh, dispensation of that rule in which the perfect king, the king forever, Jesus Christ, who rules over this creation, in the next creation is going to rule with his throne combined with God. We will have a human being, uh, Jesus Christ, who is perfect man and perfect God, sitting together on the throne of God, where the mediatorial throne is merged with the universal throne. Now, this is something that Adam was not presented with. He was not presented with the opportunity to sit um, side by side with God in rulership, because as we saw, Adam was subject to futility. Adam was subject to corruption. Jesus Christ is not. This is a slam dunk and a guarantee. Jesus Christ sitting beside God on the throne cannot fail. And this is the purpose in the new creation that mankind through Jesus Christ would rule together with God in perfect fellowship. So Revelation 22 in the next chapter, verses three through four, this is where we see this purpose being fulfilled. He's going to slowly work his way up to it, but he'll say, there will no longer be any curse. The curse is gone in the eternal state. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Now, the way that this is phrased in the Greek makes it clear that this is uh, the merging of these two thrones, but they are two distinct persons sitting on this throne, God and the Lamb. His bondservants will serve him, that is us. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Now, this is incredible. We will be in such fellowship with him that we are actually able to look upon him. We cannot do that today. In fact, when, when Samuel's parents thought that they had seen the face of God, they knew, no, we didn't, because if we did, we'd be dead, uh, because they are sinful man in the form of sinful bodies. But we, after being perfected both in our position and in our experience, will be able to come into this fellowship with God because we are in Christ Jesus. And so he said to me, they are done. His purposes for creation are done. And his beginning of the new creation is, uh, has arrived. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the end. 
or the last letter. And so he's literally saying here from A to Z, um, I am all in all, I am the beginning and I am the end. So that leads us then to our own inheritance. What is our inheritance since we are saved? In uh, Revelation 21, verse 6, the second half, and in verse 7, we read, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, in John 4, 13, we see this um, concept of water or living water and uh, people thirsting for it. Jesus answered and said to her, that is the woman at the well in Samaria, uh, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, speaking of the water that she's drawing up from the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And so this naturally makes her want this water and it should make everyone want this water or thirst for this water. Whoever thirsts for this water, whoever desires this eternal life that he is offering, is going to receive it. John 7, 37 says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from the innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So here's the condition. Those who believe in him as the Messiah, the one through whom God has promised life, this living water will be in him. But John makes a postscript on this, or he uh, adds to this an interpretation. He says, but this he spoke of the Spirit. So we have an interpretation here and a divine interpretation since this is um, inspired. Jesus is, or yes, Jesus is speaking of the Spirit when he says, um, he who comes to me, I'll give him living water. Uh, the Spirit, though, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. After Jesus' glorification, after he ascended back into heaven, after being perfected through the resurrection, Jesus was going to send the Holy Spirit. And this was promised as part of the new covenant. It was by means of the Holy Spirit that people were to experience regeneration, where they actually became a new creature in him because of the presence of the Spirit, where he put into us himself. And so uh, this water of living, or this living water, uh, which we receive through faith, um, and using the metaphor there of thirst, when we desire that eternal life, uh, and we believe in him, we receive it. John 16, 33, um, jumping off of this uh, second statement that Christ made here, that he who overcomes will inherit. Uh, John 16, 33 says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage because I have overcome the world. Not because we need to overcome the world and then we will be good enough to be identified with him. We take courage because of his overcoming, because he has been successful in all that God has commanded. We can be identified through him through faith. And so when he has overcome, we can take courage. Because 1 John 5, 4, and notice this is John who heard all that Jesus said in the upper room discourse, including John 16, 33. John is now giving us this statement at the end of his epistle, where he says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. 
by nature of the fact that we are born of God through faith, um, apart from works, we are overcomers in the world through Jesus. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, not trying really hard, not trying to keep the law, not trying to do all these good things, but it is our faith in him. Our obedience to him and the requirement to believe in him for life. This is our overcoming the world. And we can look at this in the sense that the world is set against faith. It is against believing in Jesus Christ and even those who are spiritual, but who are not believed in Jesus Christ, try to make this um, or try to diminish what exactly faith accomplishes. They try to say, okay, you need faith, but you also need works. You need to prove this, so you need to work for this. This is not at all conducive with um, biblical revelation. His finished work finishes the work of our salvation. And because the work of our salvation has been finished in him, because he has given us the spirit and power with the spirit, we are able to be obedient for the first time. And so this is uh, made possible because he has saved us. This is not the requirement for being saved. Uh, faith and faith alone, our trust in his finished work is the only requirement for salvation because he has done it all. So who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. This is John's rhetorical question to drive home the point. Romans 8, 37, Paul also speaks very similarly. He says, but in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that it is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are located in him. He is inseparable from God, and we are inseparable from him. And so nothing, past, present, or future, can ever possibly separate us from him. We are eternally secure, being identified with him. And so the one who thirsts, the one who overcomes, these are two different way of, ways of identifying believers. We have desired eternal life and we have put our trust in him because of it. We uh, overcome through faith. And so he is going to give us uh, from the spring of the water of life without cost, and we will inherit all these things. We have our inheritance with him. And what was that, uh, that water of life? It was the spirit. It is regeneration through the Spirit. And again, this, this has new test or new covenant implications because this is what was promised to Israel that was that he would restore them so that they could be in fellowship with him. And the, uh, the new covenant is a covenant with Israel, but it's one which they rejected in first, the first century. But the covenant was ratified in Christ's blood. And all who are in Christ through faith experience the blessing of this uh, covenant, although the covenant itself will be finally realized in the kingdom. And so we experience this regeneration already, but we won't see its full power and impact until Christ is reigning in the kingdom and Israel has been converted and received the blessing of their new covenant. Revelation 7, 16. Remember, we see these redeemed believers who are in heaven with God. And it says, they will hunger no more, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun be down on them, nor will any heat, for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so 
we can say, I will be, or he can say, I will be his God and he will be my son. Remember, this goes all the way back to the Pentateuch. This is what God was restoring through Israel. This is what God succeeded in restoring through Israel by means of the son, the promised seed, Jesus Christ, who is uh, an Israelite and who, when he returns, will restore or will fulfill these covenants to the people of Israel. And we receive the blessings adjacent to them because God has been faithful to them and to us through them. He's promised to bless all of the families of the earth through Abraham, and he does that perfectly. So in 1 John chapter 3, we read that, beloved, now we are children of God. And why is that? Because he has sent his son and his son paid uh, the price for our sins so that we are identified with him through faith. We now receive the spirit and the spirit transforms us. It uh, puts us into Jesus. And so we are children of God, just as we are children of death through Adam, we become children of life, children of God through Jesus Christ. And it has not yet appeared what we will be. We haven't yet experienced the full blessing uh, that will be when we are present with him. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so we look forward to the finishing of our salvation in Christ Jesus when he returns and we are conformed to his image. But now the last verse that we are going to look at is the, uh, the definition of those who are excluded from experiencing the new creation because there will be unbelievers in the kingdom, but they will not survive into the new or into the eternal state. Um, and this is really what it means by all of these things have been completed and there's no more curse. No one who experiences the curse anymore will be present in the new heavens and the new earth. And so Revelation 21 verse 8 says, but for the, uh, but for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, some people take this and say, okay, well, you've got to obey uh, perfectly, and you can never um, sin again, or else you should fear for your salvation. Well, this contradicts exactly what, uh, exactly what Paul wrote back in Romans 8.37. He says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, heights, depths, nor any created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what do we do then with believers who sin? Well, this is not talking about believers who sin. These are people, or this is talking about people who are identified with sin. Believers, when they sin, they are acting contrary to their nature. But unbelievers, when they sin, are acting in accordance with their nature. Now, the important uh, distinction here can easily be seen in the Greek or more easily in the Greek grammar than it can in the English, because English is a bit more flexible in this area, where the rules of Greek grammar are very rigid in this area. And so just uh, uh, follow with me here for just a second. You don't need to know what all of these say, because we saw the translation in the English before. Uh, but notice right at the beginning, uh, this Greek word that is read tois. This is an article, and it's a plural article, uh, similar to the English word the, uh, but following with plural objects. 
And then we have all of these things, delois, apistois, that is this cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murders, immoral persons, all of this, it's governed by one single article. And that means that this is looking at a single identity. It is looking at one single thing or a person who is characterized by all of these things, not by activity, but by identity. This person is all of those things. He is not in Christ. He does not have the righteousness of Christ. He has the unrighteousness of fallen mankind. 1 Corinthians 6.9 does the exact same thing, uh, but it's a little bit more explicit in 1 Corinthians 6.9. We read, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, uh, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, in the English, they had to add the word the before the covetous, because covetous is an adjective, and so they needed a the to make it a noun. But in the Greek, they don't need that. Here's what it looks like in the Greek. We have unrighteous. Uh, this is used instead of an article here, and everything else defines what the unrighteous is. The uh, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, etc. These are all identifying a single entity. They are identifying the one who is characterized by unrighteousness rather than being characterized by righteousness. That does not define a believer. Whether a believer acts outside of his character and does some of these things that are identifiable with an unbeliever um, is a different issue. But the believer himself is not identified with his sin. The believer himself is identified with the righteousness of Christ being imputed on him. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than now having been justified. Now, justified is the Greek word dikaia which is the opposite of this noun adikoi. The a is called a alpha privative, which means that it negates the thing. So where here we have unrighteousness, that's adikoi. Here we have righteousness or justification, which is dikaioi, without the a before it. This means that all, or we have now been declared righteous by his blood. It doesn't mean that the things that we do are righteous. But it means that judicially, God has handed down the verdict that because we are identified together with Christ in his righteousness, that we will be counted as righteous. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The wrath of God cannot touch us, not because we are uh, perfect in experience, but because we are perfect in our position. Because we are positioned in Jesus Christ, we are seated in the heavenlies together with him. We cannot be touched by the wrath of God because we are protected by the blood of Christ. And so, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11 goes on to say, but such were some of you. Now, if you follow through 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 5, you see that these Corinthians were acting very unrighteously. Their activity was despicable, and it was contrary to their nature in Christ. But they are not identified with that sin anymore. And that is what Paul is writing to them. This is no longer your identity, because now you are identified with Christ. You have the ability to act righteously now because his righteousness is in you, and so live like that. There is reward for living like that. You do not fear the wrath of God in eternal damnation, but you should fear the wrath of God in temporal discipline. But at this point in Revelation, that discipline is finished. We have been perfected. 
because we have been met face to face with Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our salvation. Our reward has been dealt to us and we are reigning together with Christ. We are now perfectly identified with him and none of these activities will be identifiable with us. Those who are still capable of sin at this point in Revelation have already been destroyed. They've already been cast into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. In the new creation, there will be absolutely no one who is capable of sin anymore because we, we will all have been perfected just as he was perfected in his resurrection. And so their part, those who are not identified with Christ, those who did not receive his righteousness, because that is the issue. The issue isn't the presence of sin. The issue isn't that we were, um, that we are sinful beings. The issue is that we are not righteous beings. But having received Christ's righteousness through faith, we are now identified with him and we are guaranteed salvation in him. Our salvation is as good as finished. We just haven't experienced all the blessings of it yet. But their part, those who do not have Christ's righteousness, will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. This was taken care of in Revelation 20. He is just reminding us that all of those who were destroyed in this second death because their names were not written in the book of life, the book of life that comes from Christ, this is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name has not been found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Not one person who has put their trust in Jesus Christ, because that's what it is to put your trust in him is to be guaranteed life. Not one person who has put their trust in Christ will be let down on this day. All of them will have their names inscribed in the book of life and will not be erased. They will not be blotted out. Our life is hidden away in his. And so if we are to experience the second death, so is Christ. And that simply cannot be. Our salvation, our life is as guaranteed as his own. And so that is the end of Revelation 21 verse 8.